so uh, if you have your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I want to ask you an interesting question, one that maybe you've discussed because uh, you have some morbid tendencies. Uh, but should Jesus tarry, uh, and you're here on earth for a lot longer, and then you pass away, and people are, uh, that know you uh, stay here, uh, what do you hope when they get together? And uh, sit around the table, maybe at a holiday or uh, maybe around your birthday after you're gone. What do you hope are the stories that they reflect on from your life? Uh, What do you hope they remember about you? Maybe the characteristics that they'll talk about. They were always this. Or do you remember that time that, you know, we were in Myrtle Beach and they did... If you had control over the narrative, if you could encourage... Uh, the people that are knowing you now, that will potentially be here when you're gone, uh, to in that moment tell this story, reflect on these, what would those characteristics, what would those stories be? Take 30 seconds and share it with your neighbor. Go ahead, go ahead. Single men, this is your opportunity. Go, go. <laughs> what do you want to be remembered by? How do you want to be remembered Are whispering like mice in church. It's awesome. Good, good, good. For those of you that didn't share, we love you as introverts. We're glad you're here. I'm sorry that I just put you through that stress. I will no longer put the attention on you for the remainder of the service. Luke 22. Jesus comes to this, what we've known as the Last Supper. It's a Passover meal that had been observed for many years by the people of Israel. It was an annual feast that looked back on the powerful, active work of what God did to deliver Israel from slavery, uh, most of which was done with a lot of kicking and screaming. Uh, It was a meal where they would take uh, a lamb's blood and it would be put on the doorpost and Uh, The way that God finally delivered them from their captors is the angel of death came through Egypt and passed over the houses where the blood was on the post and took the firstborn son where the blood was not present. And as a result, the next day, Pharaoh uh, finally let God's people go. And, And they walked out of Egypt with possessions and things that they had labored and slaved for, carrying it into this promise that God was going to make them a nation and a people where they would be blessed to be a blessing to the world around them. Annually, God wanted them to remember that they were free because God had acted on their behalf, because God had moved. He never wanted them to forget that moment where God had moved. But This text reveals something about the purpose of that Passover feast because really what we see in that first Passover is a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do on the other side of this Passover in Luke chapter 22 where he would be the sacrificial lamb who would lay his life down so that we could, uh, in the face of death, be delivered from the punishment that our sin had occurred for us where we would now receive life instead of death and instead of separation from God we would get to live in communion and fellowship with God and in Luke chapter 22 as they sat down for this meal in an upper room it says this in verse 14 when the time came 
Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat the Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now, I want to eat this meal again until its meaning, which I believe Jesus was about to fulfill through his cross, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. I will not eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took up the cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I don't believe that many of you shared that your hope when your friends, when your family gathered together after your death would be that they would get together to remember your death. Uh, We tend to gather together to remember good times. Uh, We tend to get together and want to talk about the good moments or the highlights of a person and to the best of our ability, especially if we love them, we want to minimize the moments where maybe they were more human than we would like for them to be in our lives. Jesus, though, sets a table at a Passover feast, and he commemorates and says, from from this point forward, I want you to to gather after I'm gone and not here and, and break this bread and drink this cup and do it in remembrance of me. Remember my death. Remember the way in which I'm going to die. You see, I I believe it is an essential part of Christian worship that we observe the table, that no matter how modern our worship settings get, that there is a need for us to frequent the Lord's table. One, because Jesus commands it here in Scripture, but two, because there is something essential to the Christian life that if we wander from the table, we will miss out on and lose sight of. One of my favorite hymn writers wrote a hymn, and in the line it says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. You see, you come to worship services and you hear, hopefully, good worship music that's decreasing with the people on stage so that you can see an increased sense of the presence of God and hearing the truths that perhaps you need to sing and be reminded of. But but the aim of communion and the table is it's a moment where we're no longer looking at any individual or person, but we just see his body. We just see his blood. And we're reminded of what we really need when we gather together, and that is clear eyes that see Jesus for who he is. I'm concerned in many of our modern settings. We've gotten to a point where we see the bare feet of the preacher, but we don't see the body of the Savior that was broken for the payment of sins. And we don't see the blood that was poured out for payment of sin. And as as a result, you can walk away with some life advice and be encouraged. But what you need is a vision of Jesus that motivates you into your Mondays, that carries you into the difficulties of a Tuesdays, that reminds you that there's a good shepherd that can walk with you in the valleys that you go through on a Wednesday, that, that can prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies whenever they gather to execute you on a Thursday. You see, you, you need to be reminded of the table and when we wonder from it being in view we can get motivated by the preacher and inspired by the worship team but what we need to see more than anything is the savior and 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 that's why he called us to the table you've got to remember that there is a god 
who didn't say from afar, I love you and I hope you figure this out. But he has demonstrated his love for you and that while you were still sinners, he died for you. And it's at the table where you see the symbolic demonstration of the death and the burial and the body being broken so that you and I could be made right. You need the table. You need the table because you need to be reminded from time to time that it is not by works and effort and it is not by performance, but it is by the sacrifice of a Savior one time, once and for all that was sufficient to invite all to the table. And, and, and if you forget that, then you just slide back into man-made powerless acts of religion that make you think on the basis of your performance that you're better than some, but maybe not like most. And as a result of it, you become an anti-gospel living, non-Christ-honoring follower that's forgotten the table. So we come to the table, and Jesus says, come to my table and do it in remembrance of me. Now, now that is, I believe, a foundational reason for this command But I believe we come to the table because when we stop coming, there is a pattern of what Jesus does at the table that if we forget it, we will walk away from the way in which we have been called to live as followers of Jesus. You see, the table actually shows us what it costs for us to have fellowship with God, but it teaches us how we're to live in communion with God. And when we leave the table, we forget what it means to live in communion with the God whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out so that we could be made right. And I want you to, know, to learn in this series over the next several weeks this pattern of the table that teaches us how to live in communion with the Savior who has demonstrated his love towards us. So this Thanksgiving season, we're going to open up and look at this text over and over and over again at what Christ does at the table that we need to be reminded of daily if we're to live in communion with him everywhere we go. As the Lord was at the table, the pattern that's laid out, you'll see in verse 19. Verse 19 says that he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a fourfold pattern, and it's repeated in all of the accounts of the Lord's Supper's meal. He takes. The first thing he does is he takes what's on the table. He then blesses. He lifts it to the Father and asks the Lord to bless what was on the table. Then he breaks what has been blessed so that it can then be given. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. Now, this pattern is seen in Matthew 26, 26, Mark 14, 22, and it's repeated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24. But before we ever get to the Lord's table in the last supper that he would have with his disciples, it's also something that's seen in other places. For instance, whenever Jesus was standing before 5,000 people in the wilderness in Mark chapter 6, verse 41, it says this, Mark 6, 41, as they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread, nope, that's, yep, there we go. Jesus took the, 12, uh, the, took the five loaves and two fish and looked up toward heaven and blessed, and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. So what does he do? He takes, 
what has been given to him. He blesses what has been given to him. He breaks what has been given to him. And then what does he do? Gives it. If you go over a few chapters, you'll discover the uh, feeding of the 4,000. And in that story, in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 6, it says this. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves. Thank God for them. And what did he do? After he blessed them, he broke them. And then what did he do? He gave them. You see, this is a consistent pattern that we see in Scripture. After his resurrection, Jesus walks the Emmaus Road with what's likely a husband and wife who are trying to figure out what in the world has just happened. How do we see the one who could not be stopped, stopped? How did he go from this triumphant entry into Jerusalem to now being someone who is dead and in a grave and there's this rumor that he's alive but people don't come back from a crucifixion? You don't walk off a crucifixion. There's no concussion protocol to a crucifixion. You die from a crucifixion. How could he be alive? And as they're walking on the road, Jesus showed up and began to walk with them, but they didn't recognize him. And after walking with them for several, uh, for, for a long period of time, they sat down in their house to eat. And what does he do? He took the bread. What did he do with it? He blessed the bread. After that, what did he do? He broke it. And then what did he do after he broke it? He gave it. See, within this, we see the centrality of the work of Christ in the life of a Christian. We we see how Jesus continues to take what we bring to him so that it can be blessed by the Father through his blood and by his spirit, broken so that it can then be poured out and given as an offering to the glory of God and to a blessing and a blessing for the people around them. And this is what we want to break down for the next few weeks. So today, I want to ask and answer the question, what is it that Jesus takes? I think there's a need for us to understand what Jesus takes. If you look at the text in Luke chapter 22, it says he took the bread. He took the bread. Uh, This, because of many of our experiences with church and religion, uh, we see it as the body of Christ and, and not common bread. But for the Jewish audience that would have observed the meal, it would have been seen as the common diet staple. Uh, It was one of the most frequented things that people ate. I mean, think about the story of the road to Emmaus. The couple shows up with no meal preparations, no food that's prepared. So what do they have lying around? Bread. So they put what's common, what they have, on the table. It's not unique in that moment. It's unique because of whose hands it crosses in the moments after. But it's just common daily bread. The reason I bring all of this up and begin to speak of the commonness of bread is this. Uh, Our background and understanding of this passage will remove our eyes from seeing what Jesus' disciples likely saw when they looked at the bread at this Passover feast. Think about the type of meal that you would consider worthy of the Lord's blessing. What, what meal would be worthy if the Lord was coming to your table for him to sit and eat with? If the Lord was going to multiply any kind of food, what kind of food would you be asking him to multiply? Would it be the common daily diet of bread? Or would it be a more delicate, beautiful, rare thing that you would want the Lord to be honored with and want the Lord to multiply? Now, I know I'm supposed to tell you that the bread is what we need and it's common and it's beautiful, but if I'm looking at that question with a non-religious set of eyes, I want him to multiply the New York strip. I want him to multiply the ham, ram, lamb. I want him to... I I want him to multiply something a little bit more fancy than just sliced bread. Something more than the common bread. 
Jesus, though, takes common things and does uncommon things with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and 29 says this, Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are You see, it, it's the bread within our community that's overlooked by our community that God sees with his eyes and in a redemptive lens that sees a potential that we often overlook, a value that we often dismiss, that knowing when it's in the hands of the Father, what is common can be used for uncommon things. God chose the foolish in order to shame the wise and those that think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring nothing, uh, to, to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Uh, imagine if you were to go to my house for dinner and I just threw out some cold bread and said, let's eat. Uh, you probably think, why such a common meal? Why do you hate me? Why, why have you not considered me to at least make a bowl of Campbell's soup to go along with this bread? It's just bread. It's just bread. But the point's not what's on the table. The point is what he took from the table, what he did with what was on the table. You see, the disciples were ordinary common men. This is not to say that they were not intelligent or proficient in many ways, but they had all been removed at some point in time, according to Jewish history, they had all been removed from rabbinical training school or had never been able to go because their family wasn't affluent enough to afford for them to leave the house and the family practice so they could go and learn the Torah and the law. I've told many of you this before, but if you were a young Jewish boy or girl and you had some affluent, if you were a young Jewish boy, girls weren't allowed at that point in time, but if you were a young Jewish boy, you would be around the age of five if your family had a uh, Affluentness, you would be allowed to go and study under a rabbi. You would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from ages five to around nine. At that point in time, 95% of you would be sent home to do whatever your family did. And so you lived in a society where if your dad made shoes, you made shoes. If your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. It was an apprenticeship type society, and that was the way that you would learn. So by nine years old, you were learning the family vocation after learning the foundation of the Torah. But if you were the best of the best, the elite of the elite, the smartest of the smart in the class, from 9 to around the age of 15, you would begin to memorize the rest of the Old Testament during Jesus' time. That's uh, everything that you get after the Torah all the way through the Italian prophet, Bible jokes on alert, here it comes, named Malachi. Um, anyway, Malachi. You, you, you would memorize... You would memorize all of it. So that by the age of 15, if you were the best of the best, the elite of the elite, you would have the entire Old Testament put to memory. Keep in mind, you didn't have a printing press that comes later in history. So if you were to know the Word of God and you wanted to hang on to the Word of God, you had to memorize the Word of God, which meant you treasured the Word of God, perhaps in a way that you and I are casual about it because we've got an app that can pull it up and we can speak into our phone and we can Google it whenever we need it. So why lock and treasure it in our hearts when it's just so readily available within our fingertips. I mean, the average American home back in the 2000s had seven Bibles in it, most of which go unread. 
but for the people in Jewish culture, the Old Testament, the Torah, the books that you don't read or look forward to reading in your reading plan, they were books that were celebrated when the rabbi would go to the back of the synagogue where they kept the scroll to get the scroll to read you a little bit of it on a Sunday. You would in the synagogue, Saturday, sorry, you would in the synagogue begin to dance with joy because you were going to hear the Torah As the priest would come through with the scroll, if you've never seen this, they would kiss the scroll because they knew that the words of Torah were like honey on their lips. Why am I telling you this? Because Peter and Matthew and definitely Thomas were not the best of the best. They got sent home if they even made it to the first day of school at all. They were the kids with notes attached to them, not of encouragement, but of, Mom, can you exercise the demon before you bring them back on Monday? In 1 Corinthians, and Jesus' choice in his disciples show us that it's not how uncommon and in the top percent the bread is. It is the bread in his hand. You see, Jesus takes what is common, and he uses it for what, uses it for what is glorious. You see, most do not see today Peter as an ordinary person. Most do not see today John as an ordinary person. Most do not look at bread in church and see it just as ordinary bread. No. All have become much more. And the reason why is because Jesus does glorious things with common things that are put into his hands. You see, the warning that we should take here is that for some of you, you don't think you're common. You think you're pretty special. And after all, we've created a culture that's told you and celebrated you and talked about how unique you are and how much of a world changer you as an individual are for years. And while I'm all for you having God confidence, self-confidence has never helped you be a kingdom citizen of God's kingdom. It's that self-confidence that keeps you from God dependence. And you and I have been made to live a life that clings to Jesus in every moment and every hour and every day. And so for a lot of you, you're good. Let's just be honest. Like, you're the rich young ruler that could run up to Jesus, and he's like, have you kept all the law? And you've not murdered, and you've not committed adultery, and like you said one swear word one time, and you were really sorry about it. You've lived a pretty good life. Everything you've done has been good. And here's the the, the problem. For for many of you, uh, you could fall into the trap of thinking that your goodness is the same as God's goodness, You could fall into the trap of thinking that your acts of goodness and your well-put-together life means that you're not as in desperate need of Jesus as the addict who has a life that is in shambles and wreckage around them. But I want to remind you that there was a rich young ruler in the Bible who had everything and nothing all at the same time. He had a self-righteousness that compared to the rest of his community was above and beyond. In fact, if you looked at the story in Mark 10 after the rich young ruler leaves in sorrow because he was given the opportunity to give up all of his goodness and all of his stuff so that he could have communion with God. He leaves in sorrow, keeping his goodness and keeping his stuff and his self-respect. And in that moment, the disciples, seeing how good that guy was, said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. In fact, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they've got options. They've got lots of stuff. They don't need to come to the Lord's table. Their table's full. They don't need common bread from the Lord, so why pray for daily bread when you've got everything that you could need and more? 
the disciples, with this rich young ruler, reputable in their community, better than most in mind, were astounded in their comment. Then who in the world can be saved? Who can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But whenever he takes the life of a broken, run-down, can't-keep-it-together, and he carries it to his cross where he was made sin so that sinners could know a righteousness that they could not derive in of themselves. And he buries it in its grave. He then is able to summon and call whosoever's, Peter's and dropouts, doubters and Thomas's, people who abandon when they should have held their ground like the disciples and use them because of his cross and by his spirit for his own glorious work. You see, Jesus takes common things and uses them for uncommon purposes. Jesus takes, though, not to steal, that's the enemy, he takes in order to exchange. And this is what you need to know about what Jesus takes. Everything he takes is for the purpose of it being transformed, is for the purpose of this great exchange. Uh, many of us read the word take in the text, or he took in the text, and our mind sinfully begins to think uh, about someone stealing something from us. Jesus wants my money, or the church wants the money, and they're associated with Jesus, or Jesus wants me to do things I don't want to do. He wants me to forgive people that I don't think should be forgiven. He wants me to uh, give him a life that I, I don't trust with how he's going to call me to live it. I, I don't want Jesus' way. I, I would rather have some of my way, and I'll give him what I'm willing to give him. I'll give him a, a slice of what I have with my life. But the idea of him having my whole life, taking all of my life, taking all of my time, taking all of my history, taking all of my future, taking, taking everything, that, that seems greedy. Well, you don't understand what Jesus does by and what he means by the word take. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you said out loud, I can't give this away even if I try? I can't get anyone to take it. I had a friend email me this week and he said, someone broke into my car. I got back to my car. There, I had left. There were two tickets to the Clemson Carolina game in a few weeks. I opened the car door and there were four. can't give these things away. So here, here's the problem. Many of you have played a game of coveting where you have compared yourself to people that you would change places with. And in comparison, you think that it would be better in their shoes. Not an exchange of brokenness and deadliness that's leading to nowhere apart from the intervention of God. Maybe with extra stuff, but nonetheless still the same meaningless chasing after the wind that the scriptures speak of. The scriptures are clear. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That the wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But Christ came to give us life everlasting. So you and I, by definition of the scriptures, apart from Christ, are dead in sin, cut off from communion with God. And nothing on our end can change that 
current state. The question is, who on the other side who could change it would be willing to exchange their communion, their fellowship, in order to allow you to have access to what they have? That's why we have the good news of a Savior named Jesus. He made him who knew no sin, who knew the Father fully, who lived a life in the flesh perfectly, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Essentially what Jesus takes is everything that we want to give him that we think is vile and terrible and everything that we think is so good about us that the Bible says is still as filthy rags before him. He takes all of it, which none of it in all of our achievements and platitudes or what we refrain to do could get us into fellowship with God. He takes all of it and as a result of him taking all of it upon himself and carrying it to the cross, we get the great exchange of him taking what's broken so that we can receive what is whole. We, we get the opportunity to take what is unrighteous so that we can be made righteous. We get the opportunity to take what's been cut off from God so that we can now live in communion with God. You see, it, it's not God stealing from you. It's him taking from you what is killing you, what is separating you, what is deceiving you, what is keeping you from the good things that God desires for you to experience and know in his presence. You see, this is the astounding thing about Christ. He takes what we bring from where we are and he doesn't shame us for what we bring. For some, we bring just a few fish and a few loaves. And he doesn't say, well, why don't you have more? He doesn't shame us for bringing weariness and heavy burdens. In fact, he invited them to come. Come to me, all who are weary, and take my yoke upon you. This is the beauty he takes your burdened yoke, your weary yoke, the yoke that's killing you, and in exchange, he offers his yoke. He doesn't dismiss us for bringing our weakness. He takes us. He, he doesn't dismiss us for bringing our imperfections. He takes them. You see, this is the beauty of what God takes. He takes our brokenness, and his invitation is to exchange it with his righteousness. So over the next couple of weeks... We're going to invite you to come to the table weekly. This is the only week in this series in the month of November that we will not be partaking in the Lord's table. Every other week, we're going to end by looking at how the Lord blesses, how the Lord breaks, and how the Lord gives. And then we're going to end by coming to his table. And my prayer is that your life, as you hear the reading of the word, will be a life that you open your hands up and allow him to take and allow him to bless, and allow him to break, so that your life can be a life that he then gives. There's an old hymn. It goes, uh, take my life and let it be ever only all for thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them, I'm thinking of the word, flow in endless praise. And then the, here's the text, or here's the, 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 the chorus. Here am I, all of me. Take my life, it's all for thee. I wonder if anyone in the house who has been holding on to their brokenness is the reason why they can't come. I wonder if anyone in the house who has thought because of their goodness they have a lot to offer, therefore they haven't come, but perhaps realize that you are not dealing with a thief who has come to steal, 
and kill and destroy, but you are dealing with a Savior who desires to take what you think is good so that you can receive what is truly good. I wonder if anyone in the hearing of this message and sermon and seeing the Lord's table has come to realize that God has never been trying to invade the doors of their house and and rob them and leave them empty, but has been inviting them into a communion that their soul has been looking for in accolades and achievements, that their soul has been looking for in relationship after relationship, but can only be found at his table. So instead of coming and taking communion, I want to invite you to come and bring yourself. Here's the great thing. If you come and give him yourself, he will not reject you. He will not prescribe a list of things that you need to go and do now so that you can be received. He'll take you right here as you are. And as a result, he'll begin a process of doing something in and through you to where others will begin to see Jesus in you, which is the Christian Our prayer team's gonna come. I wanna invite you to come and bring your life and ask him to take it. All of your time, all of your past, all of your addictions, all of your goodness, all of your achievements, take it. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.